Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome back to The Stacks, a podcast where we talk all things books and reading. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I am joined by writer and scholar, Dr. Damaris B. Hill. Damaris is the author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing. And today for the Stacks Book Club, she and I will be discussing Toni Morrison's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Beloved. There will be spoilers today, so please only listen if you've read the book or you don't care about spoilers. Everything we talk about on today's show can be found in the show notes. There's a link there for you to find the books, movies, and articles that are discussed, as well as links to all of our social media accounts so you can stay connected to the Stacks. Want more of The Stacks? Head over to patreon.com slash The Stacks to be part of The Stacks Pack. That's our own little bookish community that gets you inside access to the show. You can be part of our virtual book club where we discuss The Stacks book club picks via video chat. You can find out our guests in advance and a whole lot more. Head over to patreon.com slash The Stacks and check it out. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening to us through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. All right. Now it's time for the Stacks Book Club conversation with Damaris Hill about Beloved by Toni Morrison. Okay, everybody. We are back today with Damaris Hill. We are discussing Beloved by Toni Morrison. And those of you who have been with the show for a while, this is now our second Toni Morrison. So we did The Bluest Eye last year, and now we're going out of order. But it's okay. I think we're probably going to try to do one a year. That's good. And we're going to have to do this podcast for at least like 12 more years. Exactly. (laughs) So buckle up, folks. Damaris, thank you for coming back. Thank you so much for having me. And it's totally worth it. We need to have this podcast on every week. Yeah. For like 20 years. Perfect. I Sign me up. Um, okay. We're just going to dive in. I always start here. What did you think of the book? I love the book, but I want to take us out of the book one time Okay. because I want to start us with a much older book. So I want to read a short selection from Milton's Paradise Lost. Okay. So I want to read uh, lines 249 through lines 259 of the book. And it opens, Farewell, happy fields, where joy forever dwells. Hail, horrors, hail the infernal world, and thou profoundest hell, 
receive thy new processor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind has its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. What matter where, if I be still the same and what I should be all but less than he whom thunder hath made greater. Here at least we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built. So I wanted to start there because we know that Beloved is a story from bondage to freedom, where Setha leaves sweet home and everything that is delicious in, in that time and place about American culture and the nostalgia of the South being this place that has the abundance of good food and weather and lush gardens and every, all of the finer things in life. But still, Setha chose to leave sweet home for gray Cincinnati across the river nearly dies five times on her way, mm-hmm. you know, can barely make it with the burden of her children in her body and all those already waiting. And even when she gets to this alternative space, mm-hmm. this not sweet home, this not treasured space, but free space, there is still unhappiness and dirge waiting for her. Mm-hmm. There. So that's why I thought to open with Paradise yeah. Lost. Yeah. Before we say any more, I should just say this. There are going to be spoilers today. We both read the book and we're going to talk about it fully. So if mm-hmm. you haven't yet, just pause, read the book, and co- this will be waiting for you. This will be waiting. We'll be here. Okay. So Beloved mm-hmm. is Toni Morrison's arguably most famous mm-hmm. book, most praised book. Mm -hmm. It won the Pulitzer, which we're going to talk about the history of that award. And it's, it's a hard read. Mm -hmm. I struggled with this book. I will just go ahead and just say this now. I understand some of, and I'm not going to pretend that I understand all of what she was doing. I don't understand. Yeah. There's a lot in this book. And, and I think as you mentioned last week, you've read it multiple times. This is my first read. So my first interpretation of it is that I really struggled and I'm not sure that I got everything, but I also, you know, I didn't really enjoy the reading of this book or I didn't feel connected to this book Mm -hmm. in a way. And so one of the things I want to talk about, because I think it's super important is that recognizing the genius and the skill in someone and still not connecting with the work and that those two things can live in relationship with one another. And that just because you don't like something Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that you're discounting the work because there are passages in this book that gave me all the feels that I read probably four times over. Mm -hmm. And then there were sections of this book where I had to keep going back because I wasn't paying attention or like I had checked out or I was, I didn't get it or I didn't care to get it. And that those things all live together. And like, how do we talk about things Mm -hmm. that are important, quote unquote, culturally Mm -hmm. and, um, and we, if we don't like them. And we don't like them, right? Yeah. I mean, and not that I didn't, I mean, I didn't, I didn't like this book. I didn't mm-hmm. enjoy it, but I like their, her dialogue, some of the best dialogue I've ever read in my life. Right. And I could recognize that 
even though there were times where I was like, I just want to be done. So like, let's think about this. What if the dialogue was the only thing that happened outside of the mind in the story? What does that mean? That means the rest of the story Mm -hmm. takes place with inside the mind of Setha or Denver or even Beloved, because arguably we're not sure who the protagonist is. Right. Right. I, today I'll probably talk about, or I like to visit the possibilities of the protagonist actually being beloved hmm. and not Setha and not Denver. Right. Well, I don't, don't you feel that Toni Morrison is shifting the protagonist, that it's Absolutely. a braid kind of? It's definitely a braid. Yeah. I don't know that any one of them, I mean, obviously there's the shifting of the narrators or the viewpoints mm-hmm. throughout and that goes you know, we're, mm-hmm. Paul D has some sections. Of course. The, what's Mr. Bowden? Is that his name? It has some sections. He has a section. Like, so there are baby really, sucks. Yeah. There are very marginal characters that have mm-hmm. sections, but then also our allegiance is with all three of those women throughout. Absolutely. For sure. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I would, could tell you who the protagonist is. Mm-hmm. Well, what if it's a Holy Trinity, right? The divine... Right. The child and the Holy Ghost, right? Sure. I mean, that yeah. seems really obvious now that you say that. So what if it what if it the story from bondage to freedom is the story of of, of choosing individuality even at the expense of what people say is paradise, right? right? Which is why I'm bringing the the, the paradise lost story in there, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like. Like, you know, we, we have we have the Bible, arguably the most read book in the history of humanity. Mm-hmm. And then we have this blind guy who's might have been miserable, talking about Milton here, mm-hmm. whom I like to think of as my literary husband, mm. who I'm having an affair with John Dunn, but that's like a whole different story, <laughs> right? Um, but what does it mean for him to, like, be an ordained priest and recognize that um, the original sin was the desire to be independent, right? And to to write, um, you know, um, evoke like an epic story to that, in poetry to that. And what does it mean in the context of the United States of America, a place that we call the New Eden, that, that we're shaping um, to say that this place is not working out? And I got to go. Right. Well, so that's kind of, I have a question for you about, this is, I I don't know, about how Mm -hmm. sweet home and then also like white people, all one word, Mm -hmm. function in in this book. Because Mm -hmm. in the beginning, it's like, in my copy, it was like page six or something where, where Setha says, you know, she she has this nostalgia for sweet home. And then she's like, but what if hell is also beautiful? Mm Mm-hmm. And I felt like... Which I'm really sure it is. I'd never thought about it. And as soon as I read it, I was like, oh, of course it is. Of course it is. Of course it is. I mean, you have the morning star there. I mean, like, okay, so this is not going to turn into a religious debate. Okay. But we need to think about that, you know, the devil, the Satan was God's favorite. He was the first morning star before Jesus was called that. The most beautiful thing in heaven. Hmm. Right? How can beauty not be a part of where he dwells? Right. So I guess that's kind of my question is like, why do you think 
or why do you think it's important maybe is a better question that we have this like nostalgia for sweet home for this. Cause like throughout the book, we see mm-hmm. some of, and not all of the terrors and horrors and trauma of slavery. We get Absolutely. snapshots and moments of it, but that is also put right up against like a benevolent slave owner in Mr. Garner. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that I always push back against, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in reading history and, and mm-hmm. you know, going and visiting places and, you know, seeing the pictures and all that. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, I, I was kind of taken aback by that choice. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on it. I do have thoughts about it. Number one, human life is very complex. Mm-hmm. And nobody exists in 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 all righteousness and all evil, and I think um, it also re- reflects a a more authentic look at American history. That not slavery was chattel slavery was extremely bad. Right, I believe most of it was vicious. Right, I believe most of it was violent, but I think it's also important to say that it could have been done humanely. Right. Benefit of the doubt. Right. It could have been done humanely. Within the confines of it being slavery. Within the confines of you still owning people. Right. 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 Which is which is a huger sin than I would say most most any, right? Right. Removing someone's humanity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even God when he put Satan out allowed him his personhood. Right. right? But I think it's it may be easier for me to interpret that because in my own family history, my family um, that does have a plantation past comes from a plantation that started being historically preserved in the 30s because I'm sure the South thought it was an ideal plantation. Mm. Three medical doctors on the plantation. There were several slave quarters that were two-story. People were allowed to read on that plantation. So people were eager to preserve. Interesting. Where was this? This is uh, Somerset Place, Uh which is in Cresswell, North Carolina. Okay. So people are eager to, or were and probably still are, eager to preserve this type of slavery where a couple of Irish sailors Mm. owned a plantation for generations. And there are like letters where um, one plantation owner is, is ordering slaves from Africa and says, only pack 800 in the boat. The normal packing was 1200. And so this is considered beneficial, right? But when you read it in the context of business, it's just good math. When they pack the boat to 1,200, a quarter of the slaves would die anyway mm. from malnutrition, illness. Mm-hmm. So this is a this is a, a ship captain for generations. He knows right. 1,200 aren't going to make it. Just get me my 800 I'm asking for. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And bring them. Yeah. But also I want to say that the plantation couldn't have been too good because – the first 80 Africans that he ordered from Africa got off of the boat, saw the plantation, and walked directly into a 12,000-gallon lake that is next to the mm. property and drowned themselves immediately. Wow. Rather than to become property of this man. Right. And we're going to get to that, too, because mm-hmm. that's connected. Yeah. I mean, 
It's hard, I think, now in this moment in 2019 to read this that part of the book because I feel like there is I mean I so I was my family's from my my slave related family. It's my my dad's side, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And my last name is Thomas, so my assumption is that Irish. we were owned. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um and that so when I was there a few years ago, I went to a plantation and did a tour, but it's it's one of the plantations that's owned and run. Um all the tour guides are black. It's I can't remember the name of it. It's actually a great one. I'd done one before and it was horrible. And, you know, they don't really let you go into the big house until the end because they, you know, they don't want you to be like, oh, are these the curtains that Scarlett made the dress from? Like, they don't do that. They take you to the slave quarters. They they really show you the horrors of slavery. And someone Mm -hmm. in our group, some guy, uh, an Anglo-Saxon man, Mm -hmm. he said, well, weren't there like nice slave owners? And our guide was like, no. (laughs) She, She was just like, no. If you owned slaves, like, Mm -hmm. no, there might've been degrees of terrible, but like, no. Right. And so for reading this book for me, I think what was hard about that is like, I think that people want to find a silver lining in slavery Mm -hmm. and reading it from someone like Toni Morrison, who I know is so unapologetically, you know, against the white gaze. Mm -hmm. I was reading it and being like, why did she do this? Like, why did she give white people or people who are looking for an excuse to be like, slavery wasn't so bad. Like, why did she give them the garners? Well, it's easy to introduce the garners, right? And to seductively lead people into thinking that the garners were not compliant with what everything that the school teacher was doing. Right. When of course they were. Right. They left their good legacy to school teacher. Right. That they didn't have to do that. And they didn't have to do that. Right? And I think it's real tongue in cheek and real seductive and real burlesque the way that Toni Morrison draws people mm. in and say, Oh yeah, even if this was some good slavery. Right. What happened? What happened? I didn't even think about it like that. That makes a lot more sense. Right. But, you know, but like in the I think I think this is something that is at the root of my struggle with the book is that things come up when you read this book and it's hard to read through them. Like to see what you just said that now, of course, seems like, oh, right, of course, that's what she did. But it's visceral. And Toni Morrison is one of the people that teaches me like to want your written work to affect the body Mm -hmm. is an arduous task. Mm -hmm. Toni Morrison is one of the people that shows me how to do it. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause I definitely felt the bluest yes. eye in that way. And I felt like I understood. And this it is better. far more intense. This is a lot more intense. I mean, this is written what, like 10 or 12 years after. So she's oh, yeah. crafting and this is her fifth book. Mm-hmm. And who knows how long she's been writing it and thinking about it. Right. And it's just been going. Right. Um, so this is kind of a tangent, but something we're throwing out there. There's a podcast that I love called Still Processing. It's mm-hmm. hosted by two um, black culture writers at the New York Times, Wesley Morris and Jenna Wortham. And they did an episode on the Jordan Peele movie, Us. And the whole episode is about Toni Morrison's beloved in relationship to us. I can't. I need to hear You it. have to hear it. So I turned it on and then I heard what they were talking about and I knew we were going to do beloved and I mm-hmm. hadn't. I did was like, I haven't read it. I don't know. I don't want to listen. So I kind of had it on in the background, Mm -hmm. but I went back yesterday and listened. Okay. And it is fantastic. (laughs) And it gave me so much more appreciation for the movie. Have you seen us? 
No, I haven't. It gave me more appreciation for the movie Us, but it also reminded me something that I read about Jordan Peele is that he said he made Get Out Mm -hmm. so that he could make Us because he knew that he would need more money and more time and he would need more freedom to say the things he wanted to say and more trust in Mm -hmm. producers and the audiences, et cetera. I can totally believe that. And I think that that is also the case with Beloved, right? Mm -hmm. Like that the bluest eye... Oh yeah, the the bluest eye is 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 a critique of feminism. Mm-hmm. Is a way of acknowledging black girlhood and its complexity mm-hmm. and the risk associated with black girlhood. Mm-hmm. But comparatively with her other novels, it's relatively easier to process. Like I I I'm like, yay, this is the ultimate YA novel. Mm-hmm. But um yeah. Um, Do you feel like that for yourself as an author, like that you put out something first to make space for you to do things down the road? Well, my so the novel that I'm working on about girls in prison, I think it's a YA novel. Mm -hmm. As soon as my agent read it, my agent's like super smart and super funny. So she read it and she was like, you know, I sent her 25 pages. She hit me back within like four hours and was like, send me a hundred pages. I sent her a hundred pages. And then by 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning, she was like in my inbox. And she was like, I don't know what you're doing here, but you're doing something. (laughs) So I didn't know what to say, right? Because this is Audre Lorde's agent. Mm. This is Lemony Smicket's agent. Mm. Like, this is somebody who would get me. So I'm all scared and anxious. And I'm like, thank you. (laughs) And then the very next thing that she says is, this is not a young adult novel has children in it, but it ain't for children. Mm. And I was like, oh, beloved. I mean, the bluest eye, mm-hmm. right? That's what I thought of. I was like, oh, the bluest eye. And I kind of like sat in my seat. But, um, and I'm going to extend this to you because I, you, you've already admitted um, or talked about your multiracial heritage, but I know how America is set up and you've had a black girlhood. And so when we think about black girlhood, at what opportunity are black girls allowed to be children? Mm. For me personally, yes, I feel like I had a childhood. That's great. But I also don't know. I feel like I had a childhood and I grew up in a place that, which we talked about a little bit off air. I grew up in the Bay Area, which mm-hmm. is like very performative and it's wanting to embrace multicultural and mm-hmm. mix, mixedness. And so I think that there were things going on around me that maybe I didn't understand or see, which is a sign of a childhood. Right. And I think also that that's what's happening in the bluest eye. And so forgive me, but the protagonist, and what's the protagonist's sister name? It, it's mm, fine. Because I, I don't remember. even think they mention it very often. One right? of them is like something with a C. I can't think of it. I'll so Pacola, of course, right. is, is kind of... Um, the person that we focus on in this story, but her two allies, the two sisters that are friends, right? They grew up in a household, much like I assume yours wasn't, mine was, where their mother and father were very protective of them. And that's why they didn't experience the same things that Pacola experienced, Right. right? But that doesn't mean that the threats were not around. Agreed. That's Yeah, that's exactly and what And that's I think. what I'm speaking of in terms of black girlhood. Right. And we revisit that again when we're in Beloved mm-hmm. because we have, um, we have, let's say, the protagonist of Denver who has this black girlhood that's very skewed by her mother's illness or her mm-hmm. mother's trauma. Mm-hmm. 
and her mother, in fear that she'll never be able to protect her, is almost raising her in isolation. Right. And Um, she's taken that on. And she has totally embraced that. But do you have a choice if you're a child raised in an environment of chaos? Right. No. No. And this also leads to a larger question about the cultural status of America. If you are a child raised in this chaos of violence and racism, is there any other way of knowing how to live? Right. And then how do you as the individual child respond, right? right? Do you, are you a Denver? Are you a Pecola? You know, or are you a state of rage as beloved? Right. Right. Or are you, or do you turn to, for you, the word, right? Like you said it last week that your parents were, had that fear of you having mental illness. And so they were tur- Turn, trying to turn you away from the art and right. how do you respond? You know, like you kind of had your defiance. Right. Like, um, yeah. So I think I want to say that I think we all grow up in chaos, right? Yeah. But there are two responses to chaos, to embrace it or to resist it. Mm-hmm. Denver, out of love and allegiance to her family and her mother, embraced all of her mother's trauma Mm. and all of the ways that it was expressed and hazardous. Maybe if I was Denver, I would have been a little bit more um, selfish. Maybe I would have been more of a beloved character that chose me, right? Mm -hmm. That in the chaos of the United States of America and all of its structures, right? I come from a very heteronormative nuclear family, Mm -hmm. Christian-based steeped in respectability, and all of these things that America is supposed to like, right? Right. But in that space, there was little space for me to be creative without being critiqued. Right. In this space where boys were celebrated, right? My father was the last of his line and did not have a son. That is a conversation that looms Mm. in the house. That's, That's what the walls speak of, right? Right. And so... In, in that space, sometimes choosing yourself in your own rage becomes a means of survival, which I think happens with Beloved. Mm-hmm. That's how Beloved survives. She chooses herself and her rage. Right. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. 
If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, I want to kind of circle back a hair Mm -hmm. because there's a lot in this book and I know that there are things that I didn't understand, which means there's definitely things that our listeners don't understand. Absolutely. And so I kind of want to There are just, things I don't understand. Well, I yeah, I'm sure. I mean, there's so much here. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But I kind of want to talk about what actually happens in the book and like how the book is structured a little bit mm-hmm. just to kind of frame some of the stuff. So I'm going to start, but you just jump in when you're ready. But it okay. starts with, you know, it's kind of two parallel stories going on. There's the story in the present day, which is like the 1870s in mm-hmm. Cincinnati with Setha and Denver. And then Paul D comes, who is a person who had been one of the slave men on mm-hmm. Sweet Home. Um, at this point, Setha's mother-in-law has died. There's a haunted spirit in the house. The spirit is kind of like pushed out by Paul D. He performs a sort of exorcism, violent act of... Mm-hmm. maleness. I don't know. And so that happens. Then a woman, they go to the carnival Then they come home and there's a woman on their stairs. She's got mm-hmm. no marks on her really. She's clean, but she's mm-hmm. tired. She has some marks on her forehead, but she's clean and she's tired, but she should be dirty. Like she mm-hmm. should be a mess. Her shoes are polished. Paul D is like very involved in that detail. Mm-hmm. And she says her name's beloved and they take her in and Paul D's kind of wary of her, but both of the women, Setha and Denver, like embrace her, her, embrace her, take her on to be their own. Mm-hmm. Setha at first is ju- in a more general sense. So while all of this is going on, we're getting flashbacks of Setha and Paul D and, at Sweet Home and about their benevolent owners, mm-hmm. the Garners. And, and school teacher. And then who comes over after Mr. Garner dies? It's a school teacher. Mm-hmm. And we learn about Setha's husband, who mm-hmm. is Hallie. Mm-hmm. Haley. Haley. Yeah. Hallie, yeah. I was thinking like Halle Berry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. and we learn that they have children and that they were planning to escape and, and all the violence and mm-hmm. the rape and the torture and the burning and the ha- – like just the things that you associate, I'm sure, when we talk about the horrors of – 
of slavery, but also much more specific, Mm -hmm. nuanced things, which I really appreciated. Mm -hmm. So these two things are going on at once. But one of the questions I have for you is what happened to Hallie? I think Hallie witnessed the rape and violations of Setha and either could not, was disabled by the trauma Mm -hmm. or could not reconcile and be with a woman Mm. that had been, for lack of a better term, ruined. Like the thing about Setha is she had, she had the right to choose her own man. Right. And she chose Hallie. Mm -hmm. And it's important to like, kind of think about this, right? In the context of America, she chose Haley, Hallie, because he freed his mother. It's an act of, again, benevolence, but it's also a capitalist act, you know? Like this guy has the earning potential to free his mother. Mm-hmm. He can also do the same for me. Right. right. And so then we have these tropes of womanhood that are playing out on the plantation, which we know is mythological on a plantation. You're only as safe as, as your owner allows, right. right? And so then she becomes this young woman who is able to choose her husband out of six men or seven men, who, by the way, one of my favorite characters in this book is six. So like mm-hmm. I would have totally been chasing him down. Mm-hmm. Like, Hey, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and like it's bringing up six. So again, but six, so his, his lover was the 30 mile woman. Mm-hmm. He would walk 30 miles at night to be with this woman. Mm-hmm. Let's compare that with the potential of, of Haley's love, right? Mm-hmm. And how they're different. And Haley has a very Americanized view of love, right? Right. That revolves around this capital. Sixo is like, no, my love is about the freedom of my heart and what I would not do for it. Hmm. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so um, we need to look at both of those things. But I want to I wanna go back to, since we're talking about love, okay. to Paul D. and Setha. Mm-hmm. And again, dealing with this like cult of womanhood and how we think womanhood should be and how many believe that the hysterias of a woman are just her desires for a good man. Mm. And then Paul D shows up a good man, right? A man that claims to have always loved Setha. Right. And he's going to stick by Setha. Mm-hmm. And he shows up and he's happy to see her mm-hmm. and is able to engage with her in the nostalgia about Sweet Home and even in the traumas of their mind, which cannot be spoken, right? Mm-hmm. Paul D is there. He says, even when he slept with animals, he thought of Setha, right? <laughs> and he pushes her trauma and her crazy out the door. But what does it mean for for beloved to show up in another manifestation? Right. And all fully intact and perfect. It means that even the love of a good man can't push away the trauma that has been induced by the live experience. Right. And that you have to do that. And that you have to do that. And, and, you know, from being in intimate relationships, a lot of being in intimate and loving relationships is accepting your partner's crazy. Right. And so I totally believe that the real story in Beloved is how do how do partners heal mm-hmm. beyond the trauma that was induced by chattel slavery? How right. do man and woman come together outside of that trauma? So at first we, we try the logical, right? Paul D. pushes out the crazy. Mm-hmm. Crazy shows up on your front door fully dressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Looking great. 
Looking great. Unscathed. Yeah. Think he was dealing with me? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Unscathed, right? Right. And welcomed once again. And then and then and then the crazy and the hysteria and the trauma is invited back into the house and slowly begins to manipulate and run every activity in the house. And what other people find repulsive about the story and have a hard time interpreting is this whole issue of how does Paul D actually come to consummate with beloved. Right. Right. And how I teach it um, is like, let's think about it as a symbolic act. Is there any other way for him to beat it with Setha than to think Mm. that her crazy is real? Right. And to say, if this is something that you, Setha, can embrace, maybe I can too. Or maybe I have to. Or maybe I should. Or maybe I will. Yeah. And I don't even know. I think it's pretty clear that Paul D is unsure if he should. Mm -hmm. But I think it's more that he has to. Right. But then also, there's also a part of that that's like Paul D coming to to be with Beloved Mm -hmm. is also kind of like a call out of men. Absolutely. And they're why. Absolutely. It works on multiple levels. Absolutely. Yeah. Like it's both it's both like the metaphorical, but also the literal of like, you ain't shit. Right. Like You gonna be with my daughter? That quick? Well yeah. he didn't know who she was. But right, right. <laughs> I mean, I don't think he knew who she was. But that both of those things are there. Like mm-hmm. really, Pa? My and that guy. and that's kinda like the genius of it. And then his disdain, right? Right. For then, then beloved has to go, right? Because beloved becomes the manifestation of his shame, right? Because she kind of is like a blank canvas a little bit, absolutely. That she, but in it, I guess she's a blank canvas and also like a black hole, right? She's both things. She's fully her own thing and her own entity that takes and sucks in, and then mm-hmm. she's also just this nothing that everyone can project onto. I like to think of her more so as maybe like a funhouse mirror that's also this translucent window, mm. mm-hmm. right? Because really what everybody is projecting on on her is, is their own stuff. Mm-hmm. Like that's what Beloved is. She's this pool of water. Right. Of course there are things in the water, but she's reflecting your stuff. You're ugly. Or when, when Setha fully surrenders to the trauma, Mm-hmm. And then indulges beloved, right? Mm. And embraces and indulges beloved. What does that look like? So even when when Setha gave all her love, beloved gave all the love back, right? Mm. Even in a way that overtook her, right? Right, right. And and so that kind of brings us to well, we should say what I didn't even get to the part of what happened. So there's, oh, sorry. There's kind of two climaxes in this book. Yes, in both in the two parallel but disjointed narrative. So like while I explain that there's this present day and then this past day, it doesn't translate in the book directly. Like it's not, they're not, they're going concurrently and in out of order. But as the mind does. Right. As the mind does. And so after Setha, she sends her kids away to be be in freedom with their mother, grandmother. Mm-hmm. Baby sucks. Baby sucks. Then she goes on mm-hmm. her own. She can't find Hallie. He's become 
overtaken mm-hmm. with whatever it is that he saw and manifested in him. So she goes pregnant. She goes to the river. She meets a lovely white girl, Amy Denver, mm-hmm. who helps deliver her baby. Then she gets on a boat. She crosses the river. She goes to Cincinnati. She's there for like a month-ish, 28 days or something. Mm-hmm. And then there's a big party and surprise, surprise, school teacher and his white friends and family members come to get Setha and her kids. Mm-hmm. Setha sees them. She goes into the shed to kill all four of her children because yes. she does not want to be a slave again. And she does not even more than that want them to endure mm-hmm. the horrors of slavery. Unfortunately for everybody no one comes in to interfere with it. I shouldn't say unfortunately for everybody. And then mm-hmm. what happens is that she starts with her unnamed two-year-old crawling daughter, just mm-hmm. crawling, question mark. Crawling uh, already. Crawling already, question mark. Um, daughter. And she uses a saw and she kills her. And at that point, Stamp Paid comes in, who's the guy who helped usher across the river, he's like a local hero, pal, everybody. He freed everybody. He's the man. He's the man. He comes in and stops and saves Denver, the baby baby. And, and it's two boys. And the two boys. And so then there's this, this is this huge traumatic event that changes baby Suggs. It changes Sam Pate. It changes everybody who's there and has witnessed it. Including um, school teacher. Including school teacher. And they don't end up taking her back because the the slave school teacher and his people are like, this, nah, this is not good. Like we can't, there is nothing. There's no redeemable slavery to be had with this situation. Basically we can earn no money yeah. on these people. These people are wrecked. Um, so mm-hmm. that's the one climax. And then mm-hmm. the other climax comes kind of, I guess later. Well, I don't know where the other climax is. Maybe it's the the final getting rid of beloved. Mm-hmm. Maybe or maybe it's Isn't that redemption for the act, right? Yeah, yeah. So then there's this mirrored scene at the end of the present day story where Denver has finally. So Denver does what no one else does, which is she's able to kind of reach out of mm-hmm. her own stuff for help. Mm-hmm. Um, when, and that only comes after she gets a little bit of education, right? Yes. Because she goes to school for a little bit and then she realizes she can't stay at school, but then she realizes she needs right. a job to take right. care of her mother. Right, right. It's yes. a means of survival as well. Right, exactly. So she recognizes this is a bad situation. She's in with her mom and with Beloved, who is the manifestation of this crawling already question mark daughter who mm-hmm. is unnamed in and life. murdered. And murdered. She's unnamed in life. She's murdered. And on her headstone, Setha can only afford to get beloved as opposed to dearly beloved put Mm -hmm. on the headstone. So that's where the name beloved comes from. Mm -hmm. So Denver's like, I can't do this alone. I can't be with this destruction. This is bad. My mom is sick. This is fucked up. So she goes, she goes to get help. Everyone starts gossiping about Setha again. It's kind of like a re a mm-hmm. redo of this first round. And then But there's also an immense amount of empathy. People bring food to the house. Right. They start taking care of her as right. a community. Right. As they're gossiping about her. Right, as they're gossiping. <laughs> and and then one of the women, um, Ella, mm-hmm. the, she's the sister of another person who was part of the free helping to have mm-hmm. these slaves find homes, et cetera. Um, she's like, nah, 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 nah. 
y'all are tripping. We need to go and help these people. Like, this is whack. We're being mm-hmm. whack right now, basically. Like, Basically, yes. They, yeah. And so they go, the women of the black women of the town, they go, they sing, they pray, they holler. And as this is happening, Mr. Bod- Bowden, mm-hmm. who is going to provide work for Denver. Yes. She's going to be a domestic for them. He's coming around the corner and Setha sees him coming down and his hat coming around the corner. And she thinks, holy shit, school teacher is back. So there's mm-hmm. this flash of like. She can't discern. She can't figure out what's going on. And I think that's very telling too and very symbolic that once you've been traumatized by a white guy, like she can't discern that this white guy is in some ways becoming a type of agent in her life. Mm-hmm. And so she goes to attack him with an ice pick. Mm-hmm. The women jump on her and, and save him and save her mm-hmm. from killing him. And in that moment, Beloved disappears, blows up, mm-hmm. falls to pieces. I don't know. She's gone. Right. The, the trauma is healed. Yeah. So that's kind of... And and then there's a reconciliation between Paul D and Setha mm-hmm. and everybody, and which is the least interesting part to me. Right, I very was, uninteresting. I was like, okay, so that's the book. Mm-hmm. I think like that kind of does it. Yeah, that kind of does it. Um, what I usually get people to think about with the book mm-hmm. is why did why did the daughter have to go first if there was such limited time? And you had to kill four children. Why would you begin with your daughters? Mm. If infanticide is your only option. Right. In a chattel slave system, why would you begin with your daughters? Maybe because of the pain that she suffered with the rape and the taking of her um, milk, her breast milk. That like the, that, the, and that also kind of what you were saying about Hallie is that he had a earning potential or some, he had in her mind some agency. He was able to do something, mm-hmm. and she really wasn't. So maybe that's why that those horrors for the women were worse. I think so. At least for her and her yeah. interpretation. And absolutely. And also, um, a lot of people are unfamiliar with um, the prices mm. associated with commodified bodies and chattel slavery. Talk about it. Yeah. And so like a guy like Haley might be worth like 1200 to $1,500. Mm-hmm. Children were usually worth a couple of hundred dollars, two to $300 in that time. Um, a black woman that could bear children and do um, perform some type of work might be worth like 900 to $1,000, $800, 900 to $1,000. But... If a black woman was beautiful or if people thought that she had the potential to bear more children than average um, or to be used for a type of sexual exploitation as Ella was, Mm -hmm. then that woman was worth about $5,000. So the type of victimization and exploitation that would happen for women was different than the expectations of exploitation for men. Hmm. And not that men did not experience the same type of violations and exploitation. But when we're thinking of a gendered Victorian society Mm -hmm. 
if you're thinking of infanticide as a type of mercy killing, then God have mercy on my daughters first. Right. And it's historically, and it's probably true for your family too, um, why black women are better educated in the black community than black men. Hmm. Because prior to about 1950, 95% of black women in the workforce were in uh, domestic service, mm-hmm. which subject them to the same types of exploitation and violation of chattel slavery. Right. So if you did not want your daughter to be subject to that, you had whatever available resources you could garner and you would educate her hmm. so that she can find work outside of someone's home. I've never thought about that. Though I do know a few years ago at the Atlantic did a study on like who's the most who are the most likely readers and it was college educated black women. Absolutely. And I, that information was shocking to me when I saw it, not because I think that black women don't read, but just because I think like a lot of things were sold a bill of goods about who is smart Absolutely. and who reads and who's educated and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. But now you adding that layer of that that is something that is handed down to us as us being black women mm-hmm. as, as part of the legacy and the, you know, generational trauma of slavery. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm always fascinated by these things, these nuggets that I learn that are from slavery. And there's so many of them. That, mm-hmm. That's just one. I mean, we're only like five or six generations out. Like I you mean, have yeah. to, you have yeah. to think about that. Right. 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 And that, And that's so, I think like what is always so mind blowing for me is how much of it is still so related to slavery and how Mm -hmm. easy it is for certain people to say it was 200 years ago, get over it. And it's like, wait a second, I'm learning today in 2019 Mm -hmm. that one of the reasons that black women are so well educated is to avoid being raped and abused and exploited from slavery and that you're telling me to get over it because like mm-hmm. that to me is always like makes my stomach hurt a little bit and makes right. my brain spin. And like, you know, that all of this is still so connected, very connected. And it's easy for people. Like I have a friend, he's Italian or whatever. And he, he said to me today, um, we were, we were talking about, you know, race relations in this country. And he's like, so what? Every person needs to apologize for slavery? And I was like, mm. he was like, my family wasn't even here during that time. And I said, you know what? You're right. They weren't here. Like, your family's only been here about one and a half, two generations. Mm-hmm. I was like, but my family's been here since the 1780s, and those are the white ancestors that have documentation. Trust me, they did not bring any Africans with them when they came. The Africans that they purchased were mm-hmm. already here. Right. We're already here in 1780s. So you may not feel personally responsible, but what I'm telling you is that you benefit from this system. Right. And that if you don't understand the complexity of the ways that you benefit, then you should revisit a history book. But again, I'm not even asking for an apology. That, I think, that to me is the thing. No one's asking any one individual person for an apology. For an apology. No. It's not that. That's so that's so trite, small yeah, and it's Fox so News. small. It's so small. It's like, how dare you? Mm-hmm. How dare you think that I think that you person 
owe me an apology. apology. I'm not even talking to you. Like if you just got here 40 years ago, I'm super not talking to you, obviously. However, you better recognize that you're benefiting from the things that still affect I'm talking to to blue blood, old imperialist money. Right. right. And I'm really not even talking to the individuals. I'm talking about the corporations Mm -hmm. and families Mm -hmm. that still benefit Mm -hmm. from selling my ancestors. Right. Correct. And something that I said before that I still think is true. I cannot look at the red ribbon on the side of a quarter and not think it's the blood of one of my ancestors. Hmm. You can tell me it's copper all you want. Hmm. Right. I mean, so I have a friend, I might have told this story before, but I have a friend who is from, his family's from Virginia on his dad's side. And he grew up his whole life being told, we're from Virginia, but we are too poor to have slaves, too poor to have slaves, too poor to have slaves. And he was at home or at his grandmother's house. Maybe she'd passed away or something. I can't remember why. And found saved um bill of sales like uh census or whatever mm-hmm. of or inventory that's the right word inventory of his family's slaves and not only did they have slaves but they had a lot of slaves and i understand mm-hmm. how that could fuck you up if you think your whole life, sure, my my family's probably racist. Sure, I get it. Mm-hmm. But like that's a whole other reckoning. Right. And then there is the mourning of the amount of wealth lost. Right. Once people were emancipated. That I'm sure is some type of family trauma that's not mm-hmm. being dealt with. Mm-hmm. So rather than to admit that they owned people and lost all their money and they're, they're still right. not the white people that I'm not going to say not the white people, but they're still not waspy, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, like, you had all the wealth, Mm -hmm. but your cultural inheritance is not wasp. Right. Better you say you didn't own slaves than say that you did. And you lost it. And you lost it all. Right. But that's the story of America. That's right. Like, Thomas Jefferson went broke at least three times. Right. Right. And that for this friend of mine, that... Even still, I'm not asking you for an apology. I recognize that you are as far away from slavery as I am, mm-hmm. right? Like I recognize that these are your ancestors. And if I can do that work as someone whose ancestors were brutalized, how come you can't mm-hmm. do that work as someone whose ancestors profited from and or benefited. Be- benefited from? You know, like that. Mm-hmm. that's the question. It's like constantly being put on black folks to get over it, to move mm-hmm. on. It was so long ago, but there's never this conversation of like, well, then you get over it and freaking mm-hmm. hand me some shit. Like you pay me back. Right. Bitch better have my money. That all about it. <laughs> BBHMM, right? right? Right. And like the, it's, that's the thing that comes with the conversation about slavery now that's always that's like kind of a little mini version of what my brain does when I learn something about why black women are so educated. And that's important, right? It's important to say, I cannot have my ancestors back. Again, I only know what part of Africa some of my ancestors came from because you thought that my ancestors were at a benevolent plantation. Mm Mm-hmm. So we have the original records where he's asking for people from a certain region of Africa. That's amazing that you have that. 
Is it? <laughs> I mean, it is. Like I could old, my my father who has passed away. He was much older, um, so he was like grandparents' age for most people. Yes. Um, and I could only I tried to find information, and I could only get to my grandmother. Oh, okay. like so. It's amazing that you at least have like that there is some information for you more so like mm-hmm. obviously it's not amazing that your family was on a plantation but like in my mind I'm like wow that's amazing that right. you can go back that far that there is some sense of like who you are in a bigger bigger sense right and it's benefits from like let's like 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 let's get it straight white historians saved everything and then like a black historian cousin of mine right, right somewhat distant cousin went back and like Reacculturated and translated what right. these records really mean. Right. right, right, right. I mean, you still have to do the work yourself. <laughs> you still have to do the work yourself. You're like, oh, thank you for handing me this box. Right, right, right. But I still think I want to go back to the book about killing um, beloved first, and then you know, Denver, of course, was born on free soil, so she was. Denver would have probably been fourth in the line of infanticide, mm-hmm. beloved. Then the two boys, then Denver. Right. It's probably how I can imagine it going down. Mm-hmm. But black women's bodies within the context of American culture and capitalism have always been the cornerstone, serving two functions. The first function being work and production and the exploitation and benefits that someone that owned a woman could get from that. But then the other was the line of credit that was waged against her offspring. Say more. And so, again, I say for a lack of a better term, the first credit cards in America were the bill of sale of or the bills of owning people. Mm. Because you own this black woman, she can potentially have five children. So within the next 10 years, your net worth would be this. I see. Right. So in the plantation where my ancestors are from, Somerset Place, they've demonstrated how one purchase of a black woman at the age of 14 Hmm. within, let's say, 40 to 50 years led to like 137 descendants. Wow. Within two or three generations. Wow. Right. So she had like 25 to 28 children Mm. and each of them had children. And within a couple of generations, two or three generations, 173 people. Wow. From her body. Wow. On a plantation of 300. That's incredible. Right. So think about that, right? Right. Right. And so, of course, she would take your daughter out first. Right. Well, and that. You'd save her first. And also, on the flip side, is that's the biggest fuck you. Like what we what you said earlier, you said something that's like business sense about the eight hundred slaves on the ship. On Seth's side, that mm-hmm. business sense of being like, okay, you're gonna come for me. Well, let me just take out your most valuable thing first, mm-hmm. in addition to protecting my daughter, but also right. this other calculation on the other side. That's what fear and rage looks like when they come together. Right, right. Okay, I kind of want to shift quickly. Let's um, do it. I had asked some people who listen to the show, what they mm-hmm. want to talk about. And one of the things that came up from Hunter was he said, um, he wanted to hear us talk a little bit about the, the, it's not controversy, the, this book won the Pulitzer, but before it won the Pulitzer, it was a finalist for the national book award that it didn't win. Mm-hmm. And a group of, um, black 
writers, it's like 48 or something, mm-hmm. including Maya Angelou, um, they wrote a piece in the New York Times book mm-hmm. review that was like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. This book is great. And you guys are, I don't think they use quite these words, but this is racist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this is anti-black and this is uh, prejudicial and this is missing the mm-hmm. greatness of our work collectively through Toni Morrison. And mm-hmm. then a few months later, she won the Pulitzer. Right. And so I think some people take that as a cheapening of her win. Mm-hmm. And some people take it as a, as I guess the opposite of a, mm-hmm. of a adding to her win. Mm-hmm. I wonder what you think about all of that. First of all, I think, um, the work stands alone in its greatness. Mm-hmm. I cannot make the work greater than it already is. Correct. Maybe the narratives around the work shift and they change, but everything about a committee being biased towards work mm-hmm. is very plausible in the United States. Sure. Even if a critique would have been more like they didn't understand what the work was doing. I think right? that was what they said. I think that they, in calling it racist and right. all those things, it was saying like, she's written this great work that you don't get. And therefore you're punishing her because Absolutely. you don't get it. Because you don't get it. And it's calling out something that, um, that you'd rather not address right now, right. or you'd rather forget as a culture, particularly in the eighties, right? Mm-hmm. This came out in eighty seven, so it was the right. eighty eight. It was the eighty eight Pulitzer and the eighty seven National Book Award. Right, and we have to think that this is you know the time of hyper capitalism. This is the time not of um, cultural acceptance, but of quiet tolerance mm-hmm. in the White House. Right, like you don't have to accept black people, but you got to tolerate them. Right, right. This is um, before. Mm-hmm. The riots here in L.A. Before the riots of that decade here in L.A., right? Right, um, right the 90 riots. The right. The riots, excuse me. <laughs> this is, right. This is like when the money is flowing, so we're not right. supposed to have an issue of race, right. right? But this is also crack. This is also crack. This is also what I what I now recognize is the eroding of the gains of the civil rights movement. Mm. That's right. what crack for me is about culturally. Right. right. It's about these gains that were made in the civil rights movement. And I'm just talking about my experience. I don't say that this is a universal experience. But in my experience, I didn't know I was looking at that when my entire community was a black middle class community mm. where my neighbor owned a construction company. When I knew people that worked in executive offices of business that traveled the world. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that this was some type of anomaly culturally Mm -hmm. because this was the only world that I knew was this world of successful black people. Mm -hmm. And then crack happened. And then my best friend's brother is addicted to drugs and is breaking in the house and stealing out my mother's pocketbook. Hmm. And as a community, we don't call the police. Right? How can you? Right. How can you? And then older women that I look up to as bigger sisters are struggling with addiction. Mm -hmm. And then people that you knew in the sixth and seventh grade that had parents that were around and very involved in their life now in the eighth grade don't have parents. Mm -hmm. And this is crack. And there are middle schoolers and guys in school with you that have thousands of dollars and that are taking care of households 
because some of the parents are missing. And there are older guys that are telling you that they can't date women their age because they're all strung out. And now you are prime to be their partner, even though there's like seven, eight years between you. Right. If not 10. Right. Right. So pedophilia also becomes a part of this narrative about these girls that have become addicts are unworthy of love. Right. Right. So all of that. Right. But then we also have our biases that make their ways um, into other industries. And so um, I think that his concerns, Hunter's concerns about the motivation for the reward could be steeped in some could be steeped in some insecurities well, I, he just asked, he just wanted to hear us talk about it. Okay. He didn't have a... Well, well, people that believe mm-hmm. that Toni Morrison benefited from the outcry mm-hmm. of the black literary community, even in that whining, get a win. Because mm-hmm. the win for them is to dismiss the genius of the book. Right. But what if these black literary Illuminati's, Illuminaries, excuse me, that we're talking about uh, Toni Morrison's book, we're simply taking a cue from Zora Neale Hurston, who says, if you are quiet while your enemies torture you, they will kill you and say you loved it. Right? right. Well, that's how I kind of see it is like, if someone does something that's great, and the people around you can't see that it's great, it is your job to say, hey, 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 look again, this thing is great. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what happened here. Take and one I think, more gander. I think that that's the right thing. And if she, quote unquote, benefited from that, mm-hmm. that is also correct. That is the right, just, fair mm-hmm. thing. The book is the book. And mm-hmm. like I said, I didn't love the book, but I get why the book is loved. And I mm-hmm. get why the book deserves all that it has gotten. And I understand intellectually how mm-hmm. talented and just, I don't even think talented is enough of a word to say mm-hmm. how all encompassing her work is. And just even this small conversation, I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. thank you for showing me that because it makes it all, you know, each piece kind of falls in place. But I do think that if someone misses it or wrongs something, that that it is not a cheat. It's not. If that's the support of the community also. Like, right. isn't that what every artist wants? The support of their contemporaries to say, hey, hey, hey. Or a couple of eyes on it instead of just five pairs of eyes. Right, exactly. Like, that. that is, I think, some, some of the biggest struggles that artists have is that they feel so mm-hmm. alone and isolated. Mm-hmm. And that to have your contemporaries to lift you up and mm-hmm. say, wait, wait, wait. Some of y'all missed this. And we're going to give you a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance because this is that good. Mm -hmm. Or what does it mean for artists to say, you missed this. And even though I believe it's the work of the reader to get the piece, let me help you out a little bit. Right. I mean, I feel like even with this small podcast that I have, that there is an obligation in the work that I do to to know that when I pick a book or that when I have an author on that I'm, even if I don't like it, I'm still saying this thing deserves eyes in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And that that is really the job of this show 
Mm -hmm. right? Like, which is why we go through all those questions where I ask you, what book made you cry? What book made you laugh? Because there are things in you that you've read that you think deserve eyes and it's giving voice to people to say what their thing is, you know? And like that, that is really valuable. And I've heard from so many listeners who say to me, I never would have picked this up, but you said it was so good. So I did. And I loved it. Oh, great. And like, that's the thing. And then I've had people pick up things and be like, you picked this book and I hated it. And I'm like, okay. I hated the alchemist. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I think that's also important that like hating something doesn't mean that it's not good. Right. And that if you can articulate what it is that doesn't work for you, and not be an asshole about it, that that's like totally part of consuming art. Absolutely. Like that is what art is for. Aside from like whatever feelings it does for the creator, the other part of art is like that it is to be consumed Mm -hmm. and talked about and meditated on and felt and lived in and And enjoyed and enjoyed or hated. There's something great about hating something too. That's true. Like there is something fulfilling if you can mm-hmm. not hate it, like in a serious way, uh, I'm not good at that. I'm really good at intensity, right? Not good at subtlety, right? But like you hate <laughs> the alchemist, but you're not like every day going like I hate the alchemist. Like no. it's like a more, <laughs> yeah, it's like a more enjoyable hate of like mm-hmm. this is something everybody else. It's like subversive, right? And that feels good sometimes. Yeah, it's like telling people about caramel candy and laying out a marshmallow. What does that mean? Like caramel, oh, are so oh rich, yeah, so good. <laughs> and then when I. A peep. Yeah. <laughs> Have this. Have this disgusting thing. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. And so I think like uh, this will be my challenge for you listeners at home. I guess my challenge would be as you read things that you don't love to examine the work again and yourself again and mm-hmm. again and again and again. Absolutely. And that's also my challenge to myself as it's I read It's my things. challenge too. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Because you come with so much stuff. We all come with so much stuff to the thing. We all come with stuff. And I am like so, you know, and it might just be the, you know, like the church girl in me. I'm like so kind of bound to uh, classical literature and ancient mythology and things Mm. like that, that I can just read a book for that. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I miss some of the other things that it's doing because contemporary literature is so good. It is. It is. It's so good that sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm being too biased. Right. 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 Totally. So we're not going to do the thing that we always do, which is talk about who we think should be in the movie because there's like a pretty iconic movie of this. Like it's Oprah, it's Danny Newton. Like you're not like, we're not going to redo this. No. But I do want to quickly just talk about the title. Okay. What do you think of the title? Do you feel that the title is accurate to you, whatever that means? I think so. I, I like the analogy or the reason it's giving for for beloved. Um, everything in there is precious and beloved. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I liked it too. It works on multiple levels. Exactly. It's so much. And there's so many things that are mm-hmm. beloved to the people and for mm-hmm. good and bad reasons and obviously the character. Uh, we all we usually talk about the cover, but my cover is the movie version. Yeah. And then the other cover that's like the red one with it, it's just like or there's the too many versions. Yeah. yeah. It's just like okay. Um but I will tell this quick story that we have mm-hmm. to go. We're so over. But this book deserves extra time. I don't care. Um yeah. I bought my copy at a used bookstore mm-hmm. and I never opened it. I've owned it for a while now, but I'd never opened it. And I finally opened it to read it for the show and I, there is 
a ton of notes of purple notes. You are so lucky. Uh, well, the person who had this book before me was obsessed with the time and the age of everybody. So there's like a purple timeline, everyone's mm-hmm. age, all the characters. They were obsessed and with beautiful cursive, beautiful calligraphy. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it stops halfway through out of nowhere. There's a ha- there was a half bent page which people who are listening know I hate a dog eared page drives me up the wall ah. and I was like what have you like the whole page was folded and then there's no more writing and I, I was, think they must have surrendered to the book I think they'd read the book before because they were so obsessed with these details how would you know to be writing down the years unless you knew mm-hmm. you know what I mean like. Like what, it was their study copy. Yeah. It wasn't like they were like, okay, this character did this. Like, oh, important moment. What she's saying here. It was literally like, must be 36 years old. Or maybe they were tracing it against the, the historical yeah. article that inspired the book. Yeah. But I definitely felt like, ooh, I like when mm-hmm. I get a used book and there's writing. Me too. It's like a treat. Sometimes it gets on my nerves. But it depends on what they're writing about. It does. And what they're highlighting. I'm like, sometimes I'm like, that's what you, that's the important line on this page to right. you? Like, nah. Mm-mm. <laughs> I get it. And I prefer if they write in um, pencil because yes. it's more subdued. Mm-hmm. This was purple. Ink, right. Which was, you know. Invasive. I yeah. I really got over it. Um, okay. Well, that's all I have for you. Do you have anything? I'll let you have the last word on this one. Um, who was your favorite person in Beloved? I talked about Sixo being mine. Hmm. Sixo and walking 30 miles for his woman and the 30 mile woman. I liked Sixo as a character. I definitely was like, I, this is the part that I probably would like to see like in the movie version, right? Um, it never happens. <laughs> oh, no. He's not. I've not seen the movie. He's not no, in the movie. No. Well, that would be the character. That's like the character that stuck out. Though, I don't know. I think I like Denver. Mm-hmm. I know I did not like Paul D. Okay. I was not into him from Jump. All right. He's I like, never, who's this scallywag coming around? Yeah, I didn't this like This hobo. Him. Yeah, he felt too a little too smooth for me. And <laughs> even when we heard like his backstory, I never really felt that bad for him. Like I couldn't quite get on board with him. All right. So I don't know if I had a favorite character, but he was the one that I was the least into. That that that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. All right. Well Would you change anything about the book? The ending. How would you end it? I think I might have just ended with the like exorcism. Indeed. Yeah. I would have too. I would have too. I did because I didn't care about Paul D, so I didn't need him to come back. Uh, nope. I, was I like, did not need a happy ending. No. And I didn't I mean, yeah, I think I was just done. hmm I was just done. Um, but yeah, I think that's where I would have ended. Did I? And I think there wasn't an, I wouldn't have done it necessarily any differently. I mean, who am I to rewrite to right. <laughs> I just would've edited it a little. <laughs> <laughs> right. I can try to rewrite the Odyssey, but I would stay yeah. out of touring more. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think I just would end it a little earlier. Okay. But I I feel like this conversation has made me appreciate it even more. I, I told you this before. Mm-hmm. Usually when I come to a book that I didn't like so much on the podcast and then I sit down and talk to someone for about it for an hour, I end up leaving it liking it more. And sometimes the opposite is true. If I come really <laughs> hot on a book and the person I'm talking to isn't as hot on it, it can bring me out of it. Like I can be like, oh, that is a mistake or like, oh, that was bad. Mm-hmm. So. And I'm not saying that Toni Morrison did everything right, but it was so, people say haunting, right? Mm-hmm. Like she did get the haunting right, but mm-hmm. it was so thought provoking. Mm-hmm. And another thing that I found interesting is that apparently a haunted house is only an American phenomenon. Interesting. Because we have so many gl- ghosts in our closet. Yeah. That's like an American thing. That's interesting. 
Like there can be haunted places, right. but like the haunted house. Like as an attraction. Right. Or and as a phenomena. Like oh, houses oh, okay. were not like like ghosts were not regulated to space and geography. Ghosts could okay. be where they wanted to be. I see. I see. But in America, they're in the house. They're, they're in the house and they're there. They stay right. with the property. They stay with the property. Hmm. What does that mean for the internal mind, right? Well, and it also gives you a sense that maybe you could outrun your ghosts. Yeah. Which probably think, you can't. Um, no, and I think America tries. Yeah. That does seem very American. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, we're going to leave you guys with that. Yeah. We're going to leave you with all your ghosts and your hauntings. Damaris, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Tracy. I'm like hugging you um, from across and still um, nodding vigorously <laughs> at everything you were saying over here, like some <laughs> panting cheerleader. Like, yes. I love it. I love it. Oh, and everybody, I will link to everything we talked about in the show notes as well as Damaris's book, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, which is out in the world. So go get yourself a copy and we will see you in the stacks. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And thank you again to Damaris Hill for being our guest. For more on The Stacks, make sure you follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. You can also check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, like our virtual book club, head over to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash The Stacks. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music comes from Tagiragis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas, and I will see you in the stacks. Mm-hmm.